Uh, has um, anyone here seen that uh, James Dean, like famous James Dean film, Rebel Without a Cause? No? Maybe you've heard about it? A long time ago. Yeah, there we go. A long time ago. Well, it's like a. If, if you haven't seen it, you probably have heard about it, or at least you have the flavor of like this cool guy, James Dean. This is like the film where James Dean was the cool guy. Um, it's like a mid-50s American film. Uh, on Wikipedia, the way it describes it as emotionally confused suburban middle-class teenagers, basically is like, that's the, that's the idea of what the film's all about. Um, not much has changed maybe since the 50s. So it's James Dean, Natalie Wood, two like, you know, very cool people. Uh, the film brings up the difference between generations, uh, alienation between families, lonely people trying to connect with each other, and in this frustration, the tendency for the three main characters is just to lash out, to be rebellious for its own case. Uh, and that's where the title comes from, Rebel Without a Cause. Although the title comes from a book about psychopaths, so it's, yeah. Um, so Jesus encountered this same kind of brokenness of people not connecting with people the way they want to, uh, the world not being right as it ought to be. But even more so, because Jesus was... God, Jesus is God, and he's the one who created this world good. He knew how good this world could be and was. But so Jesus, too, is rebellious, though, and though it might be cheesy to say, he's the rebel with a cause in the situation. Um, what he does is he takes everything that's upside down and puts it right side up. To take all that is decaying and dying, and he makes it new. That kind of dis that's the kind of disruption that Jesus brings. And these three stories that we have here in Mark 2, uh, this is where Jesus, he's confronting the wrong ways of the world, the upside down kind of things, broken things, things that might be normal and typical to us, but things that aren't normal or typical in Jesus's kingdom. Because in Jesus's kingdom, he has authority to heal. He has authority to forgive because he's God. In Jesus's kingdom, he eats with people who are in need. In Jesus's kingdom, there is joy, such a joy, that is necessarily an offense to very religious people. Now, of course, we see ourselves in these stories, or we know we ought to see ourselves in these stories. We know the Bible isn't just written to other people, the Bible's written to us. Um, so we're gonna find maybe in some cases that we are slightly offended that Jesus forgives first without inquiring about their theology. What do they believe about the Trinity? What do they believe about God's sovereignty? We don't know. Maybe uh, we might be offended that Jesus feasts with people who don't deserve it. Or offended that Jesus isn't acting more religious. Instead, he's off partying with some like dirty backwater redneck fishermen. This is that the king the king of all creation has come is bring his kingdom and he what he chooses to do with his time is have a party with these like people who really shouldn't be religious to begin with. The grace of God is a rebellious thing to us and knows no social, cultural, or religious bounds. And we are upside down. We think we know best. We're happy to only interact with people who are just like us and we're in need of joy, AKA we're sinful. <laughs> and Jesus comes to set us right side up, rebelling against our sin, giving us the joy that we desperately need. Now this is a jarring move to those who are upside down like ourselves. Going from upside down to right side up is not probably, uh, unless, especially if you're older and you have maybe inner ear problems, it's not the most fun thing. Um, but even though the process might be hard, Jesus loves us more and calls us to go through it. So he's the rebel king of this new kingdom. He's turning this upside down world right side up, starting with us. And so you have on your sheet there the three kind of areas that these stories will, um, will bring up. 
So each of these stories teach us how the king rebels against the brokenness. The first is how Jesus challenges authority. The second is how he challenges social norms. And the third is how he challenges religious norms. So the first is the uh, first, um, what we have here, 12 verses about the king of this world challenging authority. So the king of this world dares to actually act like a king. And that's offensive to people who think that they're actually the kings. This comes across as rebellious, uh, and well, it is. And the religious leaders are offended, and we're going to find out in Mark. uh, This is a continuing theme. Religious leaders continually are offended by Jesus. What happens here is Jesus is back at Capernaum after preaching around Galilee. Capernaum is a place where he, remember we talked about, I think, last week or the week before, he's basically a local healing celebrity. He's this crazy faith healer. So people are coming out in droves to see him, and he preached the word to them. Um, and I love that they said they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Kind of like, oh, yeah, this is happening today. Mm-hmm. Jesus isn't here, but through his words, he's speaking to us today. And we are trying to gather as many people as possible in this little house. Um, so in, in this story, we have four dedicated men who take apart the roof of a house so that they could lower their paralyzed friend down and be healed. I mean, digging out a roof. I've never done that before. I gotta imagine it's probably some kind of exertion involved. Probably not the easiest thing. Was the homeowner kind of like angry or freaking out? I don't know. Uh, Is there permanent property damage? What did it do to his property value? I don't know. Now we would expect though that um, because especially the way that they're acting and what Jesus has done up until now that he would just heal this person. But he doesn't. He does something different. He forgives the man's sins. And what if you went in to see your GP and uh, after you're, you wait in the waiting room and you see her and she's like, your sins are forgiven. And you're like, oh, uh, I did not come for that. <laughs> we don't know if that's the, what the men were seeking. We're not told either way. Um, we don't know if that's what the paralyzed man wanted. Did he want just to be healed? Did he not care about his sins being forgiven? We don't really know, but that's what Jesus did. And then there's the opposition by the theological experts. See, they knew the law, and in their hearts, they're indignant. Why doesn't he talk, why does he talk like that? This must be blasphemy. Do you see, uh, I mean, the irony of the people who are supposed to know the law looking at God himself and saying it's blasphemous that he claims to be God himself? The hubris, but really, like, the lossless. And then in their hearts, because they're good law people so who can forgive sins but god alone of course they're right it's exactly right only god can forgive sins so this jesus is either god some crazy person who thinks he is or some evil person who's pretending to be for the fame he's not merely a nice person that we can just kind of be benignly happy with existing he's not just a good teacher he's either god crazy or evil now the paralyzed man and his friends seem to get it the religious leaders don't The needy ones always seem to get it. When the ones who deny their neediness miss out, even when God is staring at them in the face. Well, Jesus, being God, knows what they're thinking. Um, They don't believe Jesus is the king, and therefore Jesus doesn't have the authority to do these things. And really, uh, it would be easy to tell somebody their sins are forgiven. Um, Josh, your sins are forgiven. Like, uh, how would we know? We wouldn't really know. Uh, Where does that authority... But Jesus, obviously, I mean, he didn't just say it. He meant it. So to prove it, this rebellious Jesus says, okay, well, do you think then it's easier for me to heal this paralyzed guy? Well, wait, don't answer. I'll I'll just do it. All right, you're healed. Now get up, take your mat, and walk. Basically, Jesus does not give him time to answer. Then everyone is amazed. 
we, we talked about that word last week, amaze, excitement and alarm. Um, here, these are some other, I think, really good definitions of what this word means. We see some kind of a really broad meaning. Um, to cause to be in a state at which things seem to make little or no sense. To be out of one's normal state of mind. Inability to reason normally, to lose one's mind, to be out of one's senses. The feeling of astonishment mingled with fear caused by events which are miraculous, extraordinary, or difficult to understand. That was the reaction that people had. Like, that guy was just paralyzed, now he's not. He's walking, like, what is going on? Like, the way I thought the world worked is now completely not the way I thought it worked. Now, the theological experts in their hearts are challenging Jesus' authority, so Jesus, Jesus challenges theirs. They think they know best, but they know the least. How did they respond? We don't really know. It's kind of ambiguous. It says that everyone was amazed, but is Mark meaning to say that everyone, including the religious leaders, were amazed? Uh, is it like literally everybody, or is it just like a small group and generally everybody? Um, we don't know, and I think it's probably intentionally ambiguous that way, because this story is written for us. Are we amazed? Are we kind of excited, but also scared, because we know this is a crazy thing? Now, though everyone was amazed at the healing, nobody would seem to be amazed at the forgiveness of sins. But when Jesus healed the person, that's when people were amazed. The healing was merely a sign. If we're astonished at the sign, surely we will be overwhelmed at what the sign points to. The healing was a sign of Jesus' authority. And this kind of singular authority to change a person that has the power to make the soul clean there's a power to wipe our record of wrongs gone. I mean, no amount of biological technology can do that. But Jesus, by his mere words, does that. Just knowing about the Bible doesn't replace knowing God. Knowing about God can be a very different thing than knowing God. And the two, of course, are not mutually exclusive, but we don't want to merely be one or the other. We have to, uh, in order to know God, we have to know about him. We have to know the Bible. We have to know about theology. Um, but just knowing about God is no substitution for knowing who God is, being in his presence, being dependent on him, praying to him, talking to him, treating him like he is a person, capital P person. We don't want Jesus standing right in front of us, doing the kind of miraculous things that Jesus does, and for us to kind of miss out because we're worried about theological quibbles in the back of our heads. There's a... Um, a famous skater, or I guess he used to be a famous skater, called Tony Hawk. You guys know who Tony Hawk is? Um, I mean, I can say things like back in my day now, um, <laughs> he was a famous skater. Uh, but uh, if you're younger, like Will's like, yeah, I know he is probably because of the video game, Tony Hawk's Pro yeah, Skater. That, yeah. yeah, so he's like this famous skateboarder guy. Um, but he also had like a clothing line, a skateboard line, the video games, all sorts of things. Um, what he does, he loves to do this thing on Twitter where he likes to tweet when people don't recognize him, which I think is a great way of like, I guess, tweeting on how you should be recognized, I don't know. Um, there is this one time where he's going through this American airport and the security agent, uh, the TSA agent, um, was checking his ID and she's like, Hawk, huh, like that skateboarder, Tony Hawk. And, and he's like, yeah, exactly. And she's like, oh, I wonder what he's up to these days. He's like, this. <laughs> or uh, there was another time where someone else was checking his ID. He's like, oh, you have that same name as a famous skateboarder. And he's like, yeah. He's like, oh, you kind of look like him too. He's like, yeah, like, because I'm the guy. So Tony Hawk is right in front of these people, and he's maybe semi-famous, 
but they're completely missing out on him because they're not really looking for him. They're not like 24-7, I wonder if I'm going to see Tony Hawk today in this airport. <laughs> um, they have their own business, doing other things, finding other famous people to miss out on. But let's not miss out on God when he's staring at us right in, his, in our face. Let's not rely, rely on our own authority like these religious leaders. We must surrender how we think, must surrender how we make sense of this world, must surrender to Jesus, otherwise we're going to miss it. Now, here's the thing about surrendering, though. It's easy to surrender when we feel a need to do so. A paral- if you knew Tony Hawk was out and about, you'd be looking for him. Um, a paralyzed man doesn't take much to feel a need. Like, I'm paralyzed, I need to not be paralyzed. That's an easy need to understand. Friends that want their friend to feel better, that's an obvious need. Our friend is paralyzed, we want him to be, to be, to be changed. People in need of healing search for a healer. And when that healer comes, they, they surrender. The doctor says, here's how you get better, so you do it. Now, those who don't understand their neediness find it difficult, if not impossible, to surrender. And the right response to Jesus' authority is to surrender. Those who knew a lot about God were much slower to do so because they thought they had it right. They held Jesus at a distance, and they used religion that was originally supposed to be a way to connect us to God. They used that same religion to keep them away from God himself. And that's really easy for us to do. We can be part of a church plant, and in many ways it's much harder than being part of like a normal quote-unquote church. Uh, but we can still play at church without really being the church. We can learn a few things, maybe give up a little bit of our time, but not really surrender our lives to Jesus. We end up cold, and without knowing it, we stay that way. Now, the other group that's amazed surrenders to Jesus' authority quite quickly That the, the way this story is told. Um, there are huge groups of people gathering to listen to Jesus teach about himself and the kingdom. Now, surrendering isn't always easy. Uh, sometimes it means digging through a roof, and not even for yourself, but for your friend. But they have the right idea. Our friend needs to be healed. And this story is a micro story about what salvation looks like in our lives. When we surrender to the king, we receive forgiveness. Our past is clean. And we receive healing, free to go. So imagine the opportunities now for this former, formerly paralyzed man. Did he have a family to support? He could maybe get a job now. Maybe he could do all sorts of things. He could go somewhere without having to be carried somewhere. So salvation always comes with the hope of some kind of future. And this is what happens when our king rebels against the way of the world and brings his kingdom to us. So Jesus challenges our authority because he's the one, the true authority. And surrendering to that is in our best interest. So let's look at that next story in verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> How Jesus challenges social norms. I lost my water off. Jesus went out to teach a large crowd that gathered to him. And as he's walking around, he spots Levi, the tax collector. He goes to Levi, tells him to follow, <clears throat> and seemingly right away, Levi res- responds and surrenders. Then they go back to someone's house. Now, the NIV uh, fills in Levi's house. If you look in uh, verse 14 and 15, now, if you have a different translation, it might reflect the difference. I think really what's going on here is actually Jesus invited everyone back to his house, not to Levi's house. So verse 14 says, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And in the Greek it says, and while he was having dinner at his house, 
many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. Now, if it's a he, normally you look at, well, who was the last, like, specific person that the text points to? And it's Jesus. So Jesus told Levi, told him, and Levi got up and followed him. It was Jesus. And then while he was having dinner at his house, seems to be it's about Jesus' house. So if it is Jesus' house, and it's not even a massive theological point if it is or not, either way, you're, this is Jesus involving his life with sinners. But if it is Jesus' house, he's not even going to a sinner's house. He's bringing the sinners to his own house. Tax collector. Sinners. Eating with Jesus and his disciples. Now, sinners during this time wasn't just like a mere disparative term. It was actually like a kind of a technical category for people who didn't do two things. One, they weren't <clears throat> ceremonially pure, so they didn't keep like the ceremonial rituals. And two, they didn't separate the tithe. They didn't give to the church as it would have maybe a good metaphor. Um, and they didn't do religious stuff, like clean themselves in a certain way before they ate. Uh, basically, if you were a sinner, just another way to be outcasted from the church. The scribes would not eat with you. Religious leaders would not eat with you. Good, quote-unquote, Jewish people would not eat with you because you were unclean. Now, if also, if we don't understand what tax collectors were like to their fellow Jews at the time, uh, I think we miss out a lot of what's going on behind the scenes with the story. Basically, you have your own land. Think of this. You are in your own land. You have it yourself. And then a big, strong, occupying force comes in and takes it over. This is Rome. This is what Rome did. Took over your land. And the typical way Rome would conquer people is would they would let as many of the indigenous government systems, cultural systems, all those things stay the same as much as possible, at least change as possible, except they'd levy a huge tax on top of it all. And so much so that in many ways it would be a tax that would basically keep people below the poverty line. So you have basically not really much has changed except now everybody has to give all this extra percentage to this outside government that's basically taking over our area. And who is best to do this kind of squeezing? Well, the Romans loved picking indigenous people to collect their own taxes for themselves because they didn't want Romans doing it because that would look really bad. But if a Jewish person takes taxes, well, maybe that looks a little bit better. So if you're a tax collector, that means not only are you working with this outside, unclean, Gentile force that has basically taken over your territory, your government, but you're also the person who's squeezing you for money that you probably don't even have to give to begin with. And tax collectors weren't known for being honest. They weren't known for keeping to the laws. Basically what they do is they take more money from you, and if you put up a fuss and they'd say you're not paying your taxes and you get in even more trouble. They're basically like legal extortionists. Not exactly friendly with others you put the classic situation putting money before people they weren't trustworthy and they weren't clean so this is like as far as jewish people are concerned this is like people who have chosen the worst possible way to live and these are the people that jesus goes after and so the religious people see what's going on and they're disturbed like this Son of God, like, we've heard him described as the Holy One of Israel. This Holy One of Israel is eating with these sinners? They can't even, they don't even come to the synagogue. They're not even clean at all. They can't come to God. And of course, they don't ask Jesus directly, but Jesus responds to their kind of passive aggression. He says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I'm not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Jesus agrees with the scribes. Yeah, they're sinners. Yeah, they're not clean. And that's exactly who I'm going to. And he doesn't just preach to them. He befriends them. He's hanging out with them. And he's either at their house or they're at his house. Either way, they're, they're hanging out. 
And the question for the scribes is the same for us. Do we recognize our own position of need? The scribes thought they are the unclean. They are the kind of outcasts. They did not understand how much they were in need of being clean themselves. Now, people throughout time have always been drawing the line about who's okay, who's not okay, who's in, who's out, who deserves something, who doesn't. The church, unfortunately, is no exception to this. Um, And it happens in the church. Who's socially acceptable to be here, like literally here with our church? Who is socially acceptable to be here with us? Who is not socially acceptable to be here with us today? We may not be actively working for that to be the case, but unless we actively work against that, it will be the case because our world is upside down. And sometimes we don't mean to kind of keep people out of the loop, but we just happen to be part of a system that doesn't embrace needy people well. I mean, a great example would be people who identify with LGBTQ plus backgrounds. Even like the, very, the words that we use can signal meanings that we may or may not intend to use. If we say the word homosexual versus the word gay, that's re- received and understood in very different ways for people who come from those backgrounds. Now, it's not always easy to be able to embrace everybody. Um, and religious people will not like people who embrace everybody the way that Jesus did. But we should do everything in our power to make sure the only offense is the gospel. The only offense is what Jesus says about himself. If we're adding any more offense to that, well, we're just not acting, we're just not following Jesus the way he tells us to. Because what Jesus is telling us here is he's saying, you're all out. Every single one of you are out, but I want you to be in. And the only, only those who understand how they're out can be in. Only those who get how much they are on the outside by themselves can be the type who are, that Jesus brings to be on the inside with him. And Jesus challenges our social norms because he's come for the needy. He's saying that of himself. He's a doctor. The good ones, quote-unquote, are offended that Jesus hangs out with people who don't deserve it. Jesus is hanging out with people who aren't good enough. And they're right. They don't deserve it. They aren't good enough. <laughs> Neither are we. Now, probably the way we do this in our kind of regular daily lives is avoidance. Uh, our culture is set up to where we can avoid being with people who like, aren't good enough, however we, however we might define that. And we do have to go out of our normal way, though probably not really by much, to follow Jesus in this regard. <clears throat> this might offend our religious sensibilities, because we all think there are people who deserve it and there are people who don't. The question is, what do we do with that wrong thinking? Do we bring that to Jesus, or do we kind of hold on to that or pretend like it doesn't exist? It also offends our cultural sensibilities. Uh, It it offends our social norms. I mean, people with jobs and comfortable lives don't hang out with people who are homeless. That's just not how this world works. We don't hang out with people who are addicts. That's not how how it's supposed to be. But if we aren't first people with jobs and comfortable lives, but are broken people who have found our wholeness in Jesus, if that's who we are first, then we can easily identify ourselves with others. It ceases to be an us and them thing, and then we realize it's actually an all us thing. One of the reasons we're uncomfortable with being around needy people is that they point to our own neediness. And we're all needy. Now, if we're following Jesus, we will find ourselves going to the needy because that's what he's doing. That's, the needy is who we are. That, that's our people. That's the people we want to be with. If we're only hanging out with people who are culturally like us, socially or economically or whatever it might be, then we're we're missing it. 
Jesus challenges our social norms because he cares about the needy. And this is actually good news for us because it prevents us from becoming a ghetto. Ghetto is a very comfortable way to live, but it's not a good way to live. Jesus challenged our upside down social norms because he cares for the needy and came for them. And we are them. So Jesus, the rebel, challenges authority because he alone has it, so we should surrender. He challenges our social norms because he goes to people that we don't want to identify with. Uh, we need to follow Jesus for that. And Jesus also challenges our religious norms. Now, um, I, I, what if I was to ask you, the average, how would the average person describe the word religious? What are some things you guys would say? <laughs> what do you what do you think they mean if they call you religious? They just mean I go to church and I, you know, they don't know why I go to church. They just call me religious because I go to church. Yeah, mm. so, yeah. so you go to church every week. Yep. Yeah. So you like you have an hour or two hours or whatever your life, yeah. and therefore, yeah. yeah. Some people think that you're um, you're whole, like you act holier, even if you don't act that way. They assume that if they if they told you about their lives, you'd be holier than them. Yeah. So self righteous, <clears throat> although. Um, religious people don't have the market on uh, self-righteousness anymore I don't think we're all a little bit self-righteous regardless uh, uh, um, anything else? any other ideas? religious? absolute worldview yeah backward yeah yeah party? rule keepers I think rule keepers mm. yeah those all sound really fun going to a thing that's probably really like backward and pointless for two hours a week uh, you, you keep the rules really well and you believe because of that you're better than others. Um, does anyone ever use the word religious to describe like people who party too much, <laughs> have too much fun, who are too joyous, who are like just love life so much they can't handle it? <laughs> I've never heard that description for religious um, and maybe that's why that word is such problematic nowadays because it doesn't really describe who we are. It's, it's just a small sliver. Um, well, nobody uses the term religious to describe a party, but that is what Jesus does. In verses 18 and following, the religious leaders see that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, um, and they're wondering why. And when Jesus is talking about fasting, he's not making a doctrinal statement to never fast, because he teaches us to fast in other parts of the Bible. But he's answering that religious leader's real question of, why are like you guys more religious? And that means, like, dour, somber, like heavier, more serious. Like, why are you so happy, joyful? Why aren't you a killjoy? What they want to know. And Jesus is teaching them and us what the expectations are for someone devoted to God. With Jesus on earth as he is here in Mark 2, bringing the kingdom near, that's not a cause for a funeral. You don't fast when you're at a wedding reception. You feast. It's cause for a party. There should be joy. A, um, a commentator wrote this, So the kingdom of God, which is drawn near in Jesus' preaching and merciful activity, is not a funeral wake, but a wedding party. No one wants grim-visaged fasters at a joyous celebration. And the presence of such joy is not only inappropriate to fast, it's impossible. Jesus does allude, however, to a time when mourning will be fitting, when the bridegroom is taken from them, it's a reference to his death, but even that isn't a permanent state because we have the joy of the resurrection that follows. And Jesus goes on to talk about a patch. He goes on to talk about wine. 
um, basically saying you don't put a new patch on old clothes that's going to rip those old clothes completely to shreds. And you don't put newly fermented wine into old wineskins that are basically on the verge of bursting because then you lose all your new wine. Ripping apart, bursting at the seams, that's how Jesus describes his new kingdom coming in contact with this world. He's not saying this is an incremental change that might better the humanity 1% if you follow me. He's saying this is a completely different way to live. It's completely different than before. And when my kingdom comes in contact with this other world that's not like my kingdom, there, there is a ripping apart, there's a bursting. And Jesus isn't saying, well, then like, we should get an old patch or then we should drink old wine. He's saying, no, you get new clothes. You get to drink new wine, the best wine. The new wine that Jesus brings is incompatible with the old. So we should be amazed because something new is coming. Now Christians, um, I don't know if you've ever seen that or heard that the phrase, you will know we're Christians by our t-shirts. Um, it might be more of an American thing because the, there's like an actual Christian market for consumable goods in America. Um, but maybe it should be like, you will know we follow Jesus by our parties, by our joy. What if we had so much fun enjoying ourselves because of the love that comes from the Spirit that people would actually want to like eat food with us when we get together? That'd be amazing. That'd be good for us. Because I know I need that joy. It'd be good for others to be able to see what it's like to really be religious, if we're going to still use that word. Now, our response as people who follow Jesus, our natural state should be joy. There will be times to cry out, but even in those worst of times, Jesus' presence in our lives should lead us to joy because he is really here. The resurrected Jesus is in our midst. He's always with you if you follow him. And the Father is always beaming his smile toward us. And the Spirit is always at work within us. Always. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, You became imitators of us and the Lord. This is Paul writing. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of severe suffering, like persecution, we can welcome the gospel, the message of Gen- from Genesis to Revelation. And because of that, we get joy from it. So joy is more than just a, uh, a transparent kind of fleeting happiness, more than a feeling. It's a state of being because of what Jesus has already done. And we won't always be happy. We won't always be cheerful. It's not like to just always put a smile on your face and pretend everything's okay. Um, but we can still be full of joy underneath what might be really hard. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Understanding that though we were once on the outside and Jesus brought us in, though we were once broken and Jesus gave us the gift of wholeness, that is salvation. And if we understand that truth, insofar as we understand that truth, is where we'll find our joy. Because that means joy then is deeper than shallow happiness, it's deeper than circumstantial, whatever might happen, it's deeper than our best, best desires being met or unmet. And that makes it glorious. And that means holiness, which is wholeness, being made whole in, in, in God, holiness looks like a party. It's not dour. It's not boring. It's not somber. So let's not have our definition of holiness be so small that we act like the religious leaders here. To be holy is to be joyful, is to party the way Jesus does. 
But maybe you're um, sitting there and realizing that, one, you aren't keen to surrender, and two, you really only want to be with people like yourself, and three, you don't really have that joy that comes from the Lord. Well, welcome to church. We're all in that together. We're all in that together. First, let me say the answer isn't to try harder, isn't just to read your Bible more, isn't just to pray more. Obviously, we need to read, we need to pray, but that's not where that joy is found. It's not on us to change, to get ourselves cleaned up, and then present a clean version of ourselves to Jesus. That way leads to burning out and giving up, and that's actually the opposite of what the gospel is about. Those, those verses I brought up earlier, 1 Thessalonians 1.6 you welcome the message in the midst of suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. We didn't work up the joy. It was given by the Holy Spirit. And that's possible even when we're in severe trials. And 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, it says, You're receiving, receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, salvation is something that we don't attain, that we receive. We've been given it. We don't fill ourselves. We are filled. And that means we're dependent because by ourselves, we're empty, we're broken. Who has to rely? Who has to be dependent? The needy do. And that is us. We might perform well in our jobs. We might have lots of friends. We might have stable families. As good as those things are, we are still needy. We are still incomplete. And Jesus doesn't shame us into being better. He's there with us, the needy, eating and drinking, inviting us over to his house. So when we find ourselves out of alignment with how we ought to live, we don't rely on ourselves to do better next time. Sure, we have to act, and we do want to be better, but that's not our first stop. What's our motivation? Where does it come from? Well, first, we surrender to the authority of the Son of Man, our King. We ask Him to forgive us, and He will. We ask Him that that we would better to follow Him, the doctor, to be with the sick. He'll lead us that way. We ask that He will give us His joy, and He does. So, from one disreputable sinner to a group of disreputable sinners, let's come to Jesus' house. He's prepared a meal for us. That's why we do this every week. Better than any food or drink. And what this body does, or this bread does, is it represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Because we need it. Because without it, we are broken. What this wine does is it represents Jesus' blood, the very blood that was poured out that we may experience his wholeness. And this isn't some old wine from some old thing. This is new wine. And blessings come from it because it comes from Jesus. Now, anyone who follows Jesus gets to come into his house. He's the host of it. He's a party that he's hosting. Now, if you aren't yet ready to respond to this joy, that's fine. Just please don't come up and partake with us. But if you do follow Jesus, let's come and take this with joy today. We can take it with all kinds of emotions. So take it with the joy knowing that Jesus is with us, hosting this, feasting with us, eating and drinking with us. We've been invited to a party and let's surrender to that joy. Let's ask for more to join in with us and more to surrender with that joy. Let me pray.